Well, to, to get us started, um, one of the first questions I want to ask, and while ladies are getting situated, what questions are you most asked? You know, you go to do these conferences, you, you know, meet and run into people. Is there a one or two questions that you get posed all the time? Yeah. What would that be? Uh, one would be, how did this impact your marriage? Okay. And kind of along with that, and how did it impact your son? Um, grief really does impact a marriage. Any of you who've gone through it know that it just like sends you into a new territory that you don't have the tools for. Uh, new things you have to communicate about. And I think partly because grief is really awkward. That's the best word I know for it. I mean, everything just gets really awkward with grief, you know, and talking about our feelings of loss and dealing with tears and all those things. And I feel really grateful that um, grief for David, rather than driving apart, us apart, really drove us together. I think, yeah, <laughs> some of that, I remember when, we, when I was in the hospital, I was blessed um, with nurses who were caring for hope that were godly women. And we weren't telling our friends and family immediately in these godly nurses. One of them brought me a book written by a woman whose child had drowned. And I just, I just read it, you know, and took it there in the hospital trying to figure out, okay, what's ahead for me in losing a child? And she had this chapter about how grief had impacted she and her husband that, you know, he got quiet and didn't talk about it much. And she resented the fact that he wasn't talking about it and didn't seem to care, you know, when she wanted to talk about it and process it. And then she came to find out that every day on the day to work, way to work, he pulled over beside the side of the road and wept. And um, I read that chapter out loud to David, and we talked about it, you know, early on to just say, you know, this could happen to us. And I think what was good was that David gave me lots of grace and didn't put any hoops up for me to have to jump through. And I think I did the same thing for him. We we were able to respect each other's response to grief and timing and expression of it and not demand. I mean, grief in a marriage is a time when you lower your expectations of each other and stop expecting each other to, you know, respond exactly how you hope. So it's been great in our marriage. And, and as I talk about, uh, you know, in my last session, I talked about becoming a comforter. I mean, it's been the sweetest thing for ministry to grow out of this. You know, I do this kind of thing by myself, but we do a lot together. We, we started, last year we started hosting retreats just for couples who lost children. And we hold them in this beautiful uh, lodge, 12-bedroom lodge outside Nashville. And people come, they've been, we've had 44 couples, we've done four retreats so far, come from 31 states in Canada. And it's the sweetest thing. I just can't even tell you guys what it's like for 11 hurting couples who feel so isolated and alone and like no one understands their loss to come together with 11 other couples who get it. And what God does over the weekend is just beautiful. So that's been really fun for us. In regard to Matt, um, I don't claim to be an expert on parenting children through grief. I've, I've parented this one unique kid through it, you know. And the truth is that after Hope died, we were... He didn't seem very affected by it. He didn't seem very sad. And that concerned us. Like, you know, is something going on inside him that's going to come out later in some awful way? And so 
we, we went to a counselor for a while who uh, specializes in grief in children. And a few weeks into it, she said, he's fine. She said, uh, he didn't bond with hope like you did. And so, therefore, his grief won't be as significant. Um, you know, ho- hope was very brain damaged. And she couldn't respond. So, and she couldn't see or hear. And um, it must have been very scary for him, you know. And so... Anyway, he didn't bond significantly with hope, and that impacted that. I think it was different with Gabriel because Matt was older. He was 11, and it was a boy, and it wasn't as scary that time, perhaps. It was a little more comfortable as to what that would be like. And so I think in many ways it was harder for him. Um, But the truth is, you know, so many we want as parents to protect our children from grief and hardship, and... If we believe God is going to do something good in our lives through it, then can we also believe that he will do something good in their lives through it? Yeah. And also, I think mostly we get all uptight about what we're going to say to our child about whatever it is that grandma is dying or whatever, you know. And the reality, our our kids, as in everything else, they follow our example more than our words. And they're really watching you know, they're watching to see. So if, if we verbalized that we have great hope in Christ, but the reality day to day in the household is that we've given in to fear and despair. Our kids know it. And they follow our lead, you know. And so if our response is, you know what, this is going to be hard and it's really going to hurt. And we're just going to keep waking up every day seeking to trust God with it. And in, in however, whatever that's going to look like. Um, they follow our lead. And the other thing is, it's not just what they hear from us, but what they overhear. I mean, yeah. do, do we not know as moms that, you know, it's, it's like they get really quiet when we're on the phone. <laughs> Sometimes, you know, they're listening for what we say to other people. And so that has a tremendous impact. But today, Matt is this great 20-year-old kid. And if you ask me what lingering impact has on this, my answer is, well, let's see. Let's wait and see. (laughs) He's still a work in progress, like all of us, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, No, we don't necessarily talk a lot about it, but it's not awkward to talk about it. And um, and he's a funny kid. He's so funny. So you know, he 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 deals with it in many ways uh, with humor. And um, but the other sweet thing is, you know, he will be very excited to hear how this went this weekend. You know, what I do, he feels he takes great pride Mm -hmm. in this ministry that has flown out of grown out of our family's loss and um you know what ladies he has every right to resent his mother for giving so much energy and attention to her grief that he needed and he has every right to be a bitter kid against me for that and he's not (laughs) and i'm just grateful for the grace of god in his life that he loves me, <laughs> and he's forgiven me and uh, shares with me the sense of purpose and joy that we have coming out of this. Thank you. Well, here's a question that kind of piggybacks that. Okay. Um, this gal asked, said that she, too, had buried a daughter three years ago and wants to know, how did you or did you have setbacks in your grief? How did you oh, deal yeah. with those in, in, in your grief journey? And did you battle with envy at all? 
-hmm. you know, when you saw other little baby girls and um, just babies in South. The key word there is battle. And yeah. explain that. Yeah. Um, of course you're going to have feelings of envy. <laughs> and the question is, what are you going to do with them? Are you going to keep throwing logs on the fire with your thoughts? Or are you going to argue with those thoughts and feelings? And, uh, you know, I suppose one way I argued with my feelings of envy was recognizing, you know, there's freedom I have that I don't have any small children at home. I wouldn't be here if I had small children at home, probably, right? And so, you know, you argue with yourself in that in some way. You also argue, you realize that nobody's life is perfect. <laughs> and along with all the good things someone else might get, they get bad things. And maybe you've got some good things that she really envies, right? Um, that's so that's some of it. But the other part of it is a determination to nurture a contentment with what God gives me and with what God takes away. Mm -hmm. And a contentment and gratitude. And to reject the notion that I am owed. I'm owed a certain family. I'm owed a certain number of children. I'm owed, a, a, you know, a, a, a certain thing in this life. To, to reject that, to do battle with it. So I, I got an email from a gal the other day, and, and it was that she just, she said, I keep giving this to God, and yet I keep struggling with it. So I guess I haven't given it to God. And I said, no. The fact that you're struggling with it means you're continuing to struggle rather than giving in and just giving yourself over to despair and fear and resentment of other women who have what you don't have. And the truth is, ladies, this is the place. Talk about a creative crisis or an opportunity. If you can keep doing battle with the envy and walk through it and emerge from it with a sense of gratitude and joy for what you have, I'm telling you, you can face anything. <laughs> and that's when you know God is at work in your life. When you come through it and then, you know, you get some ways down the road and you realize, you know what? I'm not so eaten up with envy anymore. I have peace and I have joy with who I am and what I have. Doesn't mean you never feel pangs of it, but you do battle with it, okay? And the first part of this question was setbacks. You know, yeah, you know, uh, grief. Although setback, let's just, let me think about that word a minute. That that would indicate there is a particular path on which then you arrive. Um, we, we do anticipate that God will bring healing in our lives, and he does, as we work through our loss in light of Scripture, and we invite him into it and enjoy his presence in it. But there's still a broken place inside me, and sometimes it cracks open. <laughs> sometimes, honestly, I look at my life, I go, who was that 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 happened to? I can't believe that really happened to me, <laughs> you know? And I have really sad times, but not as many as I used to. And not my sadness doesn't have the power to determine and control me like it used to because God has brought healing. Um, but that doesn't mean that I, uh, I never feel it or that that's a, just a thing 
of the past to me. Very good. Um, another question. Um, I have thought, I have thought if I was good enough, I shouldn't suffer. I feel apprehensive about giving everything over to God for fear that he will allow me to suffer. I know I shouldn't be afraid. What can you tell me? My pastor used to say that we all have very dark thoughts about God. And I didn't like it when he first said that. I thought, I do not. (laughs) (laughs) You know what we do? We have really dark thoughts of God. Can you hear him in that question? You, my friend, have them just like I do. You know, that sense of, okay, God really cannot be trusted. If I give myself to him, he's going to make me miserable. I mean, isn't that the basis there? And, and so we don't really believe, okay, if there is sorrow and struggle that comes into my life, we don't believe he will be enough for us. And we don't believe what he's going to generate out of it will be good enough for us. I think about Paul's words in Philippians where he says that he has learned to count everything as loss for the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus and to be found in him, to share in his sufferings and the power of his resurrection. So Paul had come through this suffering with a way of saying, you know what, I have figured out how much Jesus is worth, mm-hmm. how much knowing him and sharing life with him as, is worth, so that everything else is easy to let go of. I mean, that can sound like a foreign language to us, right? And so what we need most ladies is not to have our comfortable life insured, but for us to be more enraptured with the beauty of Christ. For us to have our value system readjusted so that we value and long for knowing and enjoying Christ so that we say, you know what, whatever it costs me, It'll be worth it. And also, while I may not sense all of that worth in this life, I so believe that this life is not all there is. Over and over in the New Testament, we hear about suffering before glory. Suffering before glory. And the essence of faith is being convinced that the sufferings now do not compare to the glory that we will share with the Christ in eternity. And so I would just say back to you, do you really believe that? I mean, I know you believe it in a religious sense because you read it in the Bible. And so my question is, do you really believe it? <laughs> because isn't the Christian life a process of really believing, coming to really believe what we say we believe, what we think we ought to believe, but really believing that it's true, that the glory of God is going to far surpass the suffering that we experience here, and that the goodness of God and the love of God is so real that I don't, I can replace some of those dark thoughts with God with true thoughts of God, which are his goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Hmm. Very good. Thank you. More. I don't know if I'll get to them all. But we'll go I'll to... try to answer shorter, maybe. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, do you have any suggestions of things to say and things not to say to someone who is suffering? And this person was thinking of someone that would maybe struggling with infertility or perhaps uh, miscarriage, loss of children. Um, sometimes the best thing to say is, I don't know what to say. It's very humble. And what it says is, I don't presume to have any answers for you to make this okay, but I want you to know that I really care. So rather than thinking you've got to think of some brilliant wisdom, let me say you, what don't, you, don't, you don't need to tell them a story about someone else that you know who experienced this, whether it turned out good or bad. We do that because it's kind of our, we, we think that's a way of letting them know, I get this, I relate to this, and I know someone this happened to, okay? Just file it away and you don't need to verbalize it, okay? Um, the other wrong thing to do is to say nothing because you're afraid of saying the wrong thing. Uh, I was sometimes hurt by hurtful things people said. I was more often hurt by people who said nothing in the sense in that they added to my pain by just ignoring it. It felt like they diminished hope or gave to me and it hurt. Um, what a gift to overcome the awkwardness of acknowledging whatever it is you're going through a divorce. Your, your husband, you discovered he's been unfaithful. Your husband's lost his job. Your, your business is failing. Whatever it is, um, yeah, you struggle to have a child and, and you're not able. That must be so hard. And I don't, I haven't been there. I don't presume to know how hard it is, but would you tell me what that's like? I mean, asking a question rather than presuming to give information you know, a good question is, what has your grief been like these days? Rather than how are you? Because, see, then we feel like we have to give a status report. Hmm. So we say something like, what's grief like for you these days? Because that acknowledges, I expect it to be there. I don't expect you to be fixed at this point. Or, you know, you know what's the disappointment like? What, what, what's that betrayal feel like to you? Okay. Hmm. Thank you. This question is, how do you reconcile that Christians have been to, in, in times of trial, most hurtful? Um, not by what they have done, but really by what they've not done, which you've kind of indicated mm-hmm. right there. But even just in, in coming into church and, not, and you're not getting that support, how, how do you forgive? <laughs> you know, so that last question, mm-hmm. people not saying things and then church not measuring up. How do, how do you forgive? I tell you what. Um, in my experience with hope, I didn't keep a written list, but mind you, I had a list. (laughs) I was very aware of who had overcome the awkwardness, who had said ridiculous things, who had said nothing, who, who seemed to care and who didn't. And that just burned in me. And, um, the point came that I realized, you know what? It wasn't their problem about being thoughtless or ridiculous or uncaring. It was my problem of, of re- growing resentment. And my greatest breakthroughs in my life have come in facing up to unforgiveness in my life. And seeing it as not being about what that other person or persons did or didn't do, but really realizing the big issue for me was the sin, and naming it as sin, the sin of unforgiveness. 
And was I willing to repent of it? And repentance isn't just a, gee, sorry, God. Repentance is a, a walking out, a turning the other way and going in the other direction. Repentance is really hard work. And uh, what it says is instead of cold, being cold to that person who's hurt me, I'm going to be kind. And uh, instead, of dem- instead of continuing to nurture those rehearsed conversations in my mind of how I'm going to tell her what she did and what a jerk she was and put her in a place, whenever <laughs> I catch myself doing that, I begin instead to rehearse another kind of conversation. Uh, in fact, rehearse, maybe, maybe I never need to make sure that person knows what he or she did that hurt me. Perhaps God will do a work of grace so significant in my life that I will never demand a piece of flesh. <laughs> now, sometimes we need to have a conversation with someone. But the question is, is that need for a conversation really driven by, I really want to, <laughs> right? I mean, don't have the conversation until that has subsided. Until um, it can be more about reconciliation and restoring the relationship. And maybe you need to have a pretty obvious conversation to do that. But the object of the conversation won't be payback and making her hurt like she hurt you. Um, so the question, how do you forgive? The answer, I suppose, it's, it's not really a how-to question, except perhaps to nurture your awareness of the immense offense and wrong of which you have been forgiven. That's the only way. Only when we begin to see the incredible forgiveness we have received in Christ. Can we ever find any footing for beginning to, to forgive someone else? And the truth is, if you continue to nurture a hardness and unforgiveness, I have to ask you if you have ever experienced forgiveness. If you, if you are determined to keep justifying being unwilling to forgive someone else, has, is there no work of the Spirit going on inside your life of this incredible forgiveness that God has done in you so that you discover some power by the Spirit working in your life to begin to forgive someone else? I'm not saying it's because God is at work in you that it's instant and it's easy. <laughs> it's not. But if the Spirit's at work, don't you at least have the want to? And can you take a tiny little step in that direction, asking him to give you more want to and more grace so that you look out and rather than saying, I will never forgive, that was unforgivable, she doesn't deserve it, that you come to the place and say, but neither did I deserve to be forgiven. And yet I've been forgiven in such vast measure. So how can I justify being willing to forgive somebody else who doesn't deserve it? Thank you. Well, in light of that, you know, we've kind of mentioned unforgiveness. We've mentioned envy, um, setbacks and grief. So maybe 
self-pity, I'm the victim. You know, we, we could cl- classify all that as sin. Yeah. And so um, in, in suffering, in the hardships that you have gone through, has one of the purposes, because God's so multifaceted and yeah. so huge in what he does. Did you find unrevealed sin in your life? Oh, gosh. Yes. And what did you do with that? I repented. Okay. So kind of give us a scenario. And by repentance, I mean, yeah. First, naming it as sin. I mean, I tell you, this issue of forgiveness has been really, quite honestly, very huge in my life. And um, I remember being in a hotel room and waking up in the middle of the night and rehearsing that conversation once again, right? And rehearsing all of the wrongs done to me. And that's when I remember that the Holy Spirit came and convicted me. And I I sensed in which he said, you know what? You want to call this issues and baggage? This is sin. And so, and I remember saying to God, but I keep trying to forgive and I don't feel like I've forgiven. I still burn inside. And, um... And I, I made kind of a deal with God. I'm not so sure you're supposed to do that, but I did. And I said, okay, God, um, I'll make you a deal. I will take a step toward living out a forgiveness that I do not feel. And would you meet me there at every step? Hmm. And shortly after, a phone call came from that person, and, um, and I was kind instead of cold. And she didn't know what to do with me because I'd never been that way. And I I've affirmed her for something she was doing that was really selfless. <laughs> it was kind of an awkward conversation because we just hadn't had many that way. <laughs> and you see, God met me. And I hung up the phone. I was like, okay, victory number one. <laughs> and honestly, it was a several-year process. Uh, that's, what, that's what repentance is. It's a turning around and going in the other direction when God reveals something as not their problem, but my problem. Mm-hmm. Um, four years ago, my husband lost his job of 21 years, went in one day and his boss who had been more like a partner said, you know, your job is over. And um, I tell you what, that, that, that experience of losing that kind of position and financial security, that really revealed sin in my life. The sin in my life of the idol of financial security. And I didn't realize how much I had bowed down to it. <laughs> and so the process for me in, in, is that revealed that sin was once again doing battle with it and saying, you know what? I trust you, God, with my future. I'm depending on you to be my security, not a paycheck. And so it was, it's not an instantaneous thing. It was daily as I felt that fear rise up or when I, oh my gosh, as I saw the sin of a sense of entitlement. (laughs) You know what? We are this age and we've worked this hard and we've accomplished this much. This, This shouldn't be this hard for us. I mean... We should be sitting pretty now, right? And, you know, my friends, yeah, they're going on the ski vacation over Christmas. We should get to do that. And, that's, and to name it for what it was was just was a sin of entitlement. And to just continue to do battle with it and 
to, in its place, cultivate a sense of gratitude and joy and peace for everything that God has given us and not grow in resentment, not, not resent the boss who fired him, you know, not, not resent the things we gave up in our lifestyle, which, by the way, have ended up being great to let go of and have been a real blessing to us. And I hope when money, if money starts coming again, we won't just go back to that same old life, but that we'll instead realize all that we have learned to live without and give it away. I mean, that's God working in our lives through, um, through suffering in a way that's positive so that we identify and relinquish idols in our lives. You know, you talk about idols in idols being the thing that we find our satisfaction in, our hope in, that we want to have some kind of payoff. Yes. And and trans and God wants us to transfer that onto Him. Yes. And have Him be that for us. Will you be my security, my hope, yeah. my satisfaction? How do you make that transfer? What does that look oh. like in life where you're you're recognizing, you know, I do put hope in my husband's paycheck. How do I make God be my hope so that if paycheck goes away, I'm not devastated, mm-hmm. but I am resting in mm-hmm. who God is. I'm not sure it's a how to. We, we want to boil down the life of faith to a lot of, we'll take this step, this step, this step, this step, right? It's more, uh, what would be the word, uh, intrinsic or dynamic than that. It is abiding in Christ. John 15, you know, abiding, if, if I abide in you, if my words abide in you and you abide in me, that's the invitation, that's what the life of faith is, abiding in Christ, okay? How do you abide in Christ? Well, um, how do you experience a great intimacy with a friend or with a man? You, you listen to each other, Right? You share life together, day-to-day, ordinary life together. You talk to each other. Uh, you, and that's what abiding as Christ is, is that we, uh, we listen to him by reading his word. We talk to him through prayer. We, we abide with him. And the fruit that comes out of our lives is, first of all, we're given eyes to see these things that are idols because we're abiding in him. And he works in us a new affection, a new sense of hope and peace. So it's not always just, a, you know, how do, how do you do it? But that sense in which, how do I, uh, I want to abide in Christ so that his life flows through me. And he, he's changing what I want. And he is changing what I cherish and that sense of what I must have. I, I go from that sense of thinking, I must have a family that looks like this, to I must have Christ. <laughs> and if I have him, and I know he's working in my life, he is satisfying me. So my demand lessens, lessens for lesser things. Mm-hmm. Good. Thank you. Here's a question. I have a friend who is constantly seeking the answer to, once saved, always saved. How would you address that? Perhaps what scripture can you give that I that can support salvation? Um, For those of us who grew up in the church, 
we've got all these little phrases, right? That in some ways, we just have to kind of throw out and get real with what we're talking about. I mean, even that phrase, once saved, always saved. Or just the phrase, to be saved. Or to ask Jesus Christ into your heart as your personal Lord and Savior. You know what? I just never use that phrase. What did you he- How did you hear me explain last night what it means to be in relationship with Christ? It is to take hold of him. <laughs> to make him your treasure. To put all your full weight on him for who he is and what he's done. Talking about the same thing here, but I'm trying to use real language. So can I just say that some of it, you know, once saved, also saved. We're wanting to kind of put religious categories on something. So let me just address it this way. The issue is, have you taken hold of Christ? And has he taken hold of you? And if Christ has taken hold of you, and you have taken hold of him, that's a permanent thing. The issue is whether or not you ever really reached out to take hold of him, or if... um, you went through a religious experience. And if you come to me and you say, you know, I went forward in church when I was a child and I was in an evangelistic group in college. But the truth is, you know what? Jesus really has no place in my life. And I don't, I'm not interested in reading the Bible and I'm not interested in any kind of life to please him. To me, I'm not going to go whether it was once saved, also saved. I'm going to say, will you take hold of Christ? <laughs> let's, let's set aside whatever it is ha- that you look back at in the past. Okay, The issue is right now, what are you trusting? Here's the issue. What are you trusting right now today to make it possible for you to stand before God one day and know that he will smile on you and receive you? That's the real question. Can we just get rid of once say, you know, all these phrases? The real issue is what are you trusting? On whom are you trusting? Are you trusting your goodness or some decision you made at one point in your life that has never borne any real fruit in your life? Um, when, when the Holy Spirit comes to us, he does a work of regeneration, meaning if you have come to Christ, there was a day when you were spiritually dead, maybe, and then there was a day when you became spiritually alive so that you could trust him. This is a work, not a work you do and not a decision you make. This is a work only the Holy Spirit does. He makes you alive to God. Now, maybe you can point to the day that happened. Maybe you can't. There was a particular time you went from being dead spiritually to alive spiritually, all right? And if you have become alive spiritually, you can no more um, become dead than Christ. If you are alive spiritually, you are in Christ. You have his life, and your life cannot be snuffed out. You will die one day physically, perhaps, but you cannot die spiritually if you are in Christ. All right? 
hope that helps. Mm -hmm. Thank you. This question, I haven't really experienced the loss of a loved one or really even much suffering. Is there anything that I can do to prepare myself for that day? Yes. What would that be? What would that look like? Pursue knowing God for who he really is. Um, Those of you who are in the Hebrew study, you know, I wrote about this, that sense of coming to a point in my life where I was so busy for God. I was working in Christian publishing. I was busy in my church, and yet I was so empty spiritually. I mean, I had this great fear that somebody would come and ask me. I'd be in a position one day when somebody would say, well, you know, how is God working in your life right now? And I was terrified because I knew the answer was, well, he's not really. Because I'm not, I'm not listening to him by reading his word. I'm not talking to him. I'm real busy for him. And I'm real interested in talking theology about him. But I'm not really interested in him. And that brought me to a really low point in my life. And we moved to Nashville 17 years ago. And I I was having all these health issues. And I realized that the health issues were there, but they were really of a symptom of a greater issue and emptiness. And that was, I was desperate to move from feeling like a huge hypocrite to knowing God in a really in a real way. And so, you know, I had a business from home and I went and visited uh, a weekly intensive Bible study and, uh, and I joined up. It seemed like a huge sacrifice to me that I would leave my house every Wednesday and not be available to my clients to do, go to this study and do the daily lessons. And ladies, God met me there. (laughs) He met me there in the most significant way as I would Read the word, not just like looking for a little dose of something, but read it and study it. And as God spoke to me through to me through his word, convicting me of sin, and then I changed, I repented. And but more than that, that regular study of God's word, being on the front row every Wednesday morning for eight years, it was building a foundation in my life of knowing who God is and how he works. And So when the storm came in my life, I wasn't destroyed by it. I was impacted by it, affected by it, but not destroyed by it. And so what can you do right now? I mean, I'm not trying to give you the pat answer of, well, study the Bible. But I'm telling you, study the Bible. (laughs) (laughs) The word does the work of God. And ladies, it... It builds you up. It makes you strong. It makes you indestructible <laughs> so that you can face anything. So don't just go to the Bible looking for a little tidbit of inspiration. Or don't go to the Bible as a guidebook for life looking for little moral or faith tips. Go to the Bible saying, God, I want to know you. I want to understand who you are and how you work in the world, and what you want of me, and what your purposes are in the world. I want to get the big picture. And if you go to him in that way, he will build a foundation under your life so that nothing can destroy you. Very good. This, this kind of piggybacks that, um, what you're just saying, but in your suffering, how did you focus on God's word? So, uh, you know, grief can so distract us. How did you focus on God's word? Well, I needed the accountability of this group. Okay. 
Don't you? <laughs> I need it. I mean, it's not the sign of spiritual maturity necessarily that you don't need accountability with your brothers and sisters. It's a sp- sign of spiritual maturity that you recognize you need it, and so you put yourself in that situation to be accountable, to be in God's word. Um, so I suppose that's part of it. Um, but also, when I read things in the Bible that didn't seem to make sense with me, especially things that didn't seem to fit with that experience I was going through, I didn't use that as an opportunity to chuck the Bible. I looked at that and, and realized something is not wrong with the Bible. Something's wrong with me. Mm-hmm. Something is wrong with my understanding of what this passage means. And so, and then rather than just kind of going, oh, yeah, I'll figure that out someday, I went to figure it out. I'll give you a couple examples, very significant examples. In the year after Hope died, um, one experience was that uh, we read the story of the leper who is healed by Christ. And he comes to Christ and he says to Jesus, you could heal me if you're willing. And Jesus' response to him was, he says he touched him and he said, I am willing, be healed. And I got to tell you, when I read that, that year after hope died, it hurt my feelings. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was studying the gospels and I was seeing all these miracles of healing. And I just, I remember sharing with my group, it hurts my feelings. I, I look at that and I, what it feels like to me is that he looked and said to me, I'm not willing. And so I just had to look at that and go, is that what this, is that what's happening here? Or is there something I'm not understanding about what's going on here in the Gospels? And I went on a search to understand the ministry of Jesus' ministry of healing in the Gospels. Hmm. What is it all about? What was he doing? Is it there so that I will expect Jesus to heal me when I go to him and ask for healing? And that search and my discoveries in it were very significant. The short version is, and um, I deal with this in, a lot in the book out there that's uh, hearing Jesus speak into your sorrow. But the short answer was I realized one thing, that Jesus was giving us a preview of the healing ministry he is bringing to this world. We talked earlier today about the curse that he set in motion relieving this world from the curse. So every time we see a healing miracle in the Gospels, it's as if he is pulling back the curtain saying, see, see what I'm going to do when I come again at the end of time, when I bring a pervasive perfection in this world. He was drawing back the curtain to show us what he's going to do. And yet we read those and we try to force in the here and now what he has reserved for later. And we end up disappointed with the Gospels that he doesn't seem to show up. Okay, so there's, that's one example. Quickly, I'll give you a second one. Same Bible study. Once again, God meets us in his word as we study it. All right? And, and we, we read things. We think, there's nothing for me here. And then, voila, he speaks to us, right? Uh, the, the question for the Bible study that week was, read Psalm 91 and relate how you have experienced it in your own life. Well, Psalm 91 says, um, you know, he will save me from... Uh, being hurt is basically the message. You know, he will he will not let my foot stumble against a stone. He will save us from the fatal plague. 
We'll walk through the fire and we won't be burned. And once again, I just share with my group, I don't get how this is true. (laughs) He did not protect my family from the fatal plague. I hit my foot upon a stone and far worse. So I don't get how this is true. (laughs) Well, I went on a study to figure out what are God's promises of protection really all about in the Bible. What has he promised to protect me from? And when I sense that I have not been protected, what am I not seeing? And um, that was also a very worthy pursuit. And once again, I go through a lot of that in hearing Jesus speak into your sorrow. Ladies, God has protected us. He, has, he protects us from the evil one. We see that even in Job's story as we're looking at it. You remember when he's, the second time Satan comes to him and he says, you can take away his health, but you can't have his life? Really, he's saying there, you can't have his soul. God, if we belong to him, he has promised to protect our souls for eternity. While Satan may win some battles in our life, he cannot win the war for our soul. He's protected us. But most significantly, how has God protected us? God has protected us from the wrath that we deserve. Instead of pouring out the wrath that you and I deserve on you and I, he has poured it out on Christ. We're protected. Now, see, we look at that and we go, well, gee, that's kind of nice, but that's kind of that's his spiritual job, right? <laughs> you know, I want him to protect me from breast cancer. I want to protect me from a car accident. And so we come, what we, what we need most is to see that the protection he has provided is what we really need. We'll be protected from an etern- in a, for an eternity, not for just a sh- the short time of this physical life. And so what we need is to nurture our understanding of and our valuing of the protection that he has provided us. That's where he's met me in the Bible over and over again. Mm-hmm. Hope that's helpful. That's very helpful. I'm really glad that you made mention that you know, we bring a perspective to the word and we try to make our perspective fit the word. Yes. And and it doesn't mesh, doesn't measure up. And and, and God's like, No, I want your your perspective to be my perspective. Mm-hmm. So it will mesh up and, and and work itself out. And I think that's why Paul in Colossians was praying that you know, that we would be filled with all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that, I love the so that's. I'll tell you, when you go at home and you start reading, you're going to see so many so that's. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you, you will. I mean, I underline them, yeah. you know. And, but so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please him in all respects, to bear fruit in every good work, and increase in the knowledge of God. Mm-hmm. Ladies, we've got to know some things about God. And that will firm up our feet and we would bow down and worship him when what we think was most precious is gone. Mm -hmm. I have time, maybe one more question. It's a short question. We want to know, were you joyful in your trials? Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes, you know, during, during Hope's life, we would invite people people would want to bring us a meal. And we would say to them, well, bring us a meal, but bring enough for you guys too and stay and eat with us. Mm-hmm. And we would sit around the table and we talked about stuff that really matters. You know, when, when you're in that place in life, you know, you're not just chatting. 
about stuff that doesn't matter. I mean, it really moves the conversation to a deeper level. We talked about life and death and faith and hope and prayer and healing and all those things. And sometimes we'd close the doors, people would leave, and David and I would look at each other and we'd think, you know, do they think we're crazy? Because we'd laugh a lot. (laughs) And we had a lot of joy in our home in the midst of great sorrow. And sometimes I would think to myself, maybe they'll think we're just like in denial or that we don't love hope, (laughs) that we could have this kind of joy. You know, I think I always thought that if you have deep sorrow, that that's, that jo- that deep sorrow and great joy is mutually exclusive. <laughs> and I think now that deep sorrow actually hollow out, hollows out a place in us where we can have more joy. Mm-hmm. Does that sound crazy? Mm-hmm. Um, I tell you what, the, the joy of, meaning and the richness that our experiences have. The joy that I have, I'll just bring it to right here today as we close. The joy I have in spending time with you and having the opportunity to look you in the face and say, he really is that good and he's, he's really that dependable and he's really enough. I mean, that, that's real joy. <laughs> the joy in who he is and his sufficiency and getting to share it with you and pray with you. I wouldn't trade that for anything. <laughs> and so um, I've been incredibly sad, and I'm still sometimes very sad. But I have so much joy. And it's not a product of positive thinking. It's It's not a product of, well, I'm a really strong person. Because, ladies, I'm not a strong person. But I've taken hold of someone who is strong. Mm. And his spirit is at work in me, generating something that, quite frankly, I could never generate on my own. It's something supernatural. And if you have the Holy Spirit inside you, he is working in you to do something that is far beyond you that doesn't come naturally to you, but is supernatural so that you can have a joy that defies your circumstances. Thank you. Thank you so much for letting us come into... Thank you for your questions. I'm sorry if we didn't get to yours.